0: We need to do everything we can not to look back and say, I miss those opportunities. So if you have an op- opportunity to advocate for yourself, do so. If you have the opportunity to object, do so.
1: Welcome to the HGW Podcast, where your hosts Zoe Sekutis and Erica Huss, founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a
2: multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled, and sold, and now we're moving on. We put down the juicer and picked up the mic to start a conversation. We'll bring you behind the scenes information on leading brands and emerging ideas in this rapidly evolving world of wellness.
1: Every Wednesday, we chat with experts or entrepreneurs who help us cut through the noise and bring you information you can actually use.
2: No shaming, no guilt, just the cold pressed truth about real ways you can feel better, mentally, physically, and emotionally.
1: And bonus, we even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of your wellness journey.
2: Clinical studies have shown that writing five-star reviews improves mood and circulation. So if you like what you hear, give us some love and share with a friend.
1: Often irreverent and occasionally intuitive, consider us your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey there. Howdy. Howdy. How's it going? All right. What do you got to say? I feel empowered. Oh, really? I do. Tell me. I'm just after this conversation with Heather Hansen.
2: Yeah, I know. She's... Look, she's impressive, this woman. She has so many skills. She has so many skills. She has quite a few. She's got quite a bit of education as well.
1: Oh, that, that's what I... Yeah, I guess she's just like studied so many different areas. She's like... She's psych- wicked smart. She's a wicked smart, guy. She went, you know, she's like trial lawyer or whatever. <laughs> no um, big deal. For like, you know, defending... Medical malpractice. Malpract- medical malpractice. So she's she knows a... Shit ton about yeah. medicine, which is right. Super impressive.
2: She knows just
1: as much about. I mean, she went to law school, but she knows just as much about medicine. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, she she would say that she's learned more about medicine than in the, in the past few years than she has about law. Right. But anyway, and then she also went to college, You know, she has a degree in uh, psychology. Yeah,
2: and she also wrote a book and she has a podcast and yeah. so she's she's busy and not a she's lazy lady. Failing in life, yeah, obviously
1: she's fe- she's failing, but she has reminded us, I think, both that we are our own best advocate mm, or that yes. we need to be our own advocate. Yes, It's important to have people around you who can act as your advocate sometimes, yes. but you need to work on being your own advocate, not just like,
2: you know, in every aspect of in your In every life. aspect, right? It's not just about doctors and, and medical care, but obviously... Pertaining to this conversation and this podcast, it had a lot to do with wellness. But yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway here and what she's trying to do with her book and her podcast, which is also under the title of elegant, the warrior, elegant Warrior. It's about how to find that balance between being elegant and graceful in your life and also really, you know, fighting the good fight and getting getting where you need to go yeah. with that balance. So
1: So you have to be a warrior and you have to, and you can also be elegant and have compassion while you're doing it. Right. So, you know, pull out your sword, but like and put a little pu- silk
2: bow on and it. And then just
1: put a little bow in your ponytail. <laughs> you can do both of those things at the same time. We did talk about ponytails too. She did. She's yeah. like I put them, you know, like put my hair in my ponytail. It's like bopping around and I'm like I'm ready to go to battle. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It was just such a good visual. She's kind of awesome. I want to hang out with her. Yeah, she's good. She's good people. Yeah. And she's she's seen a lot. Yeah. Um she's got a lot of a lot of pearls of wisdom this one. So, yeah. um Take them in. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Heather. Welcome, Heather Hansen, author of The Elegant Warrior, keynote speaker, and trial attorney. These are three titles that you wouldn't necessarily associate together, which is kind of cool. Also podcaster, podcaster That's host, right. host yeah. of the Elegant Warrior podcast. That's right. That. Small plug. We got to participate in, which was super fun. so excited for it to come out
0: because it was a great conversation.
2: We, we had, had fun. fun. We it enjoyed it.
0: Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I think that uh, I like having two guests. It's fun to have a conversation with multiple people and sort of popping in and out and get it going where the conversation goes instead of like... Where you think it's going to go? Mm-hmm. It was fun. It was yeah, a good really like combo. To, you
1: and know. you're a very good interviewer. Thank you. You're I a think very that, good host. Yes.
0: Well, it's you know you said about the, those three things where you wouldn't necessarily see together, and I think that there's common threads in everything that I do. But the reason that I, if I'm a good host, it's because for years I've taken depositions. Mm -hmm. of people. And all I do is ask questions. That's true. That's Um, such a good point. And I ask questions of people who are in really rough places. You know, my cases (laughs) are all cases where patients have sued their doctors. Mm -hmm. So I'm either asking questions. I don't question my doctor at deposition. I talk to my doctor privately and then I question him at trial, but I question the injured patient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's terrible. You know, the injured patient is catastrophically injured or dying. And so being able to ask questions in those circumstances and be curious and compassionate makes you, I think, pretty uh, experienced in asking questions in almost any circumstances. Well, the compassion,
2: I think, is key there.
1: Um, Yeah, you have a very good bedside manner (laughs) for a trial attorney. (laughs) Thank you. For a trial
2: attorney. (laughs) Well, so let's let's get into that because I think it's really, it's a fascinating journey that has led you to where you are. So can you give us a little bit of the backstory of how all of these pieces kind of connect?
0: Yes, so I started... At my law firm, which is a firm that is focused on defending doctors in medical malpractice cases, we do other things. We also do some nursing home litigation, which is similar. Uh, We do a whole bunch of stuff, but primarily we defend doctors when they get sued. And I started working there when I was in law school, and I loved it. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and stand in front of juries and speak, which is why the keynote speaking makes sense. I like to stand in front of people and speak, but I didn't know what kind of law I wanted to do, and I thought maybe I'd do criminal because that's where you get the most time in front of juries. As soon as I started medical malpractice, I was in love because when I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. So this is the perfect combination of a frustrated doctor and somebody who likes to speak in front of crowds. I have gone to watch numerous knee replacement surgeries and hip replacement surgeries and learned more honestly about medicine than I have about law in the years of doing it. Mm-hmm. So for 20 years, I've defended doctors and hospitals and nurses and PTs and anything medical really in cases where the patient is injured and sues the provider or the hospital or the doctor. And I've loved it. I've been really successful and very fortunate. I've taught at Villanova Law and lectured at Stanford and Berkeley and Hastings and Penn. And now I've written The Elegant Warrior and I'm doing some keynote speaking, helping people to use the skills that a trial lawyer uses to win in the
2: courtroom and apply them to life. So what is what is The Elegant Warrior? like? How does How does that experience sort of translate to what this concept of The Elegant Warrior is?
0: So there's a story that I tell in the book that is, I think it's interesting for your audience because this whole idea about wellness, so much of it is mental as well as physical. And in this particular case, the patient was sick. He had cystic fibrosis, which is a disease that can cause a lot of repercussions for a patient. And he had sued my doctor for what he alleged to be a failure to give the right medication. When I had to take his deposition that day when I sit down and ask questions, uh, we went the first day to do that, and he was ridden with anxiety, sweating and crying and really just losing his mind. And we couldn't do the deposition because he couldn't go through with it. So we rescheduled it, went back another day, same thing. And interestingly, trial lawyers are predominantly male Females are like less than 5%. Why is that, do you
1: think?
0: It's such a um, conflict-ridden, aggressive job. And it's also, you have no control over your schedule. Like if mm. you're on trial, if you, it's very hard to be a mom and a trial lawyer who actually tries cases. But it's also very aggressive. There's not a lot of collaboration. It's all conflict. It's one of the few jobs other than politics and sports where someone wins and someone loses mm, publicly. For the whole world to see.
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. Which is hard and also thrilling. You know, one of the reasons I loved it, but also one of the reasons that I don't love it. And in this particular deposition, it was, there was a hospital's attorney was there, a man, the patient's attorney was there, a man, the patient himself was a young man and he was losing it. And I said to him, we need to do this. So what can I do to make it better for you? And he said, he had big Timberland boots on. And he said, I feel like I would feel better if I didn't have these boots on. So I got down on my hands and knees and untied his boots and pulled them off. Like, okay, he doesn't feel well. Maybe this will help. And also, I have to get this deposition done. And then I took his deposition for a few hours. I asked him about his pain and his regrets and his suffering and his conversations with my doctor. And it became clear to me over the course of time that he wasn't telling the truth. Hmm. The medical records were saying something different than what he was saying about the conversations he had, not only with my client, but with other healthcare providers as well. Mm -hmm. So that means this case was going to go to trial. It wasn't going to settle, which a lot of cases do. So when it came time for trial, this is like two years later now, I'm getting ready. So that part of me that gets down on my hands and knees and helps someone with their shoes, that's elegance to me, Mm -hmm. compassion and kindness Mm -hmm. and class. Now at trial, my job is to be the warrior Mm. and to attack his story, never him, I make that distinction in the book and in my life, that I don't have to take someone's dignity if I have to take their story. But my mm-hmm. job is to attack his story so that the jury sees the things that I see that this isn't necessarily true. So I'm getting ready to do that. And I always have my hair in a ponytail when I have to cross-examine because i am that's like my thing. One of my clients says, you can see the ponytail bobbing when I really get going.
1: <laughs> and right before- That's your like go-time pony? Yeah. Go-time pony, okay. high <laughs>
0: pony, no hair in the face and a pantsuit usually because I'm getting in boxes and up and down, and don't want to worry about yeah. whatever. I like suit.
2: well, but I like that you make that distinction, and it has nothing to do with like the femininity having to be on, you know, masked. Masks, or right. right,
0: absolutely, and that's a big part of what I do, using the the feminine part of me to do what I do. Mm-hmm. The day of his trial, the day I was to cross-examine him, right before he was to get on the stand and I knew I had to attack his story, he came over to me with his mother and he said, Mom, this is that nice lady I told you about. Oh, and now she's about to rip us to shreds. The one, and he <laughs> knew. I mean, there yeah. was a big p- piece of manipulation in this. Yeah. But he said, the one, I, the one who was so nice to me that day. And she... Gave me a hug and said thank you so much. He came home and told us how you helped him with his shoes. And as I'm hugging her, I'm like, <laughs> "Okay." So, so
1: you think his attorney basically had him go and
0: do that? I don't think the attorney did. I think that the the man himself. He, he, he was knew in enough. his mid twenties. He was he was very manipulative of the people in his life in general, yeah. which is something that you see as you look at medical records and psychiatric records and social worker. I mean, you read everything about this person in preparation for trial. So I think that I don't think his attorney told him to do it. I think he d- decided it on his own and he got up in the stand and I did my job and I did it well. And I knew I had done it well. You know, you know, when mm-hmm. the jury's like looking at him and shaking his head and their heads and looking at me and like grinning. And I got to the car at the end of the day and I cried because I was like, who am I? Am I that nice woman who helps this person who's clearly in pain, even though he wasn't telling the truth. And the jury ultimately saw that he wasn't telling the truth and we won. But I, am I that elegant person or am I that warrior? And can I be both? Mm. And if I can, how do I find that path? And it's not easy. I don't pretend in the book and in life, I, whenever I do interviews about this, I always say, I, it's not easy. Sometimes you're elegant, sometimes you're the warrior, but ideally you're on that road in between the two where you're mm. able to maintain a little bit of both no matter what you do.
1: Sheesh, I was deposed once and I was just like uh, twice. Oh my God. It's not fun. <laughs> it can be very, you know, and I think that the person who was deposing me was like very, I would probably somewhat compassionate, not a total jerk, but it was still like, I don't know. I think like I've just, I guess I've seen too many movies with like, yeah. you know, courtroom scenes. And I, I, I was really like very getting into, yeah, it's very intimidating. And then I had my attorney there with me as well, but it was, it was actually interesting to me to see their relationship was so sort of like cordial. Like they just, they were like, oh, hey, like, hey, Bob. It's like they had just seen each other last week or right. something. And um, then they, um, probably business mode. they probably
2: had.
0: They probably had. Yeah. It's so interesting that you bring that up because last night I spoke to a group of female s- surgeons and I was telling them that there's this thing called the curse of knowledge, which was, they studied it at Stanford. But it's the idea that sometimes you know things so well that you forget that other people don't know them. Mm, yes. So that happens all the time in medicine. Doctors know things so well that they forget patients don't know them, and they don't always tell them or explain things. Right. And it happens in <laughs> the law. Sounds like
2: what happens in my house every day. Right? <laughs> no, that's <laughs> my husband is just one of those people that like he knows a lot about a lot of things, and he forgets that you know civilians like <laughs> myself need some explanation every once in a while.
0: Absolutely, and it's really hard for the people who know to bring themselves back to the not knowing. It's hard for the doctors, right. and it's hard for the lawyers. And so one of the things I really try to do is to overcome it by thinking at the beginning of every case, like, what won't my client understand? And one of the things I was telling these women last night that I always say to my clients is, you'll see that I'm friendly with the opposing attorney. That doesn't mean I'm not on your side. That doesn't mean I'm not going to fight. But we have tons of cases together. And if I'm able to maintain that relationship, it serves everyone. You know, we're able to make better deals and make allowances for things and scheduling and everything. But that's hard for people to see yeah, because they want you to go in there and like kill people
2: right well (laughs) I know
1: yeah and that's sort of how I always choose a doctor as well because I feel like it's it's very empowering if you make sure that your client or your patient or whoever it is has that knowledge if they don't have it I mean they're just driving blind and they're just right there's no empowerment there so I always tend to trust a a practitioner if they have the ability to really break things down for me and explain it to me uh, like I'm a three-year-old
0: it's there's so much in what you just said. There are so many studies that show that the word you just used, trust, is the key to good health. Trust between physician and patient. So there's a book called Back to Balance by Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright that sort of dives into this pretty deep. If you trust your physician, you're more likely to have lower cholesterol, lower blood sugar, better hypertension. You're more likely not to be readmitted to the hospital once you're dismissed from the hospital, and you're less likely to be in the hospital for a long time if you have an illness. You also give your doctor obviously better scores on the things that matter to them. It's called age cap scores. So trust between patient and doctor is as important as anything to wellness, Yeah, but we don't talk about it enough and how to get it. And yeah. Zoe you pointed out, like those conversations talk to me like I'm a three year old, yeah,
2: well, yeah, I think it really illustrates, even going back to what you were saying before about the other attorney on the other side, it's this whole concept of like, the person is not the problem, right? So none of us is served by going into any type of confrontational conversation where the the issue on the table gets conflated with the person that you're actually in disagreement with or at odds in some way. So whether you're talking about explaining, the, the problem, explaining the condition, explaining the procedure, or, you know, and your, you're in a fight with like your husband, it, I think it all boils down to this same concept, which is this element of trust. Like we are both in this together. we It is, it is us versus this problem, whatever that may be. And obviously when you're dealing with life and death and and, you know, Actual health and wellness, it's even, it's, it's that much more important. Yeah. And the problems, it's so
0: personal. Like, if you think about most cases, like, I don't know your case, most cases are business or car accident cases. These people have never met. The only other type of case where the people have met is family law. Mm. And then, other than that, the relationship between doctor and patient, they've touched each other, oftentimes intimately. And now, they are adversaries Mm -hmm. in a very contentious win-lose situation. And it does tend to get very personal. And I love the whole idea that the person's not the problem, the problem's the problem, Mm -hmm. but it's really hard to get people to see that way in the courtroom.
1: And I think also the trust piece of it has to do, you know, you just listed a ton of benefits that come out of a trusting relationship between doctor and patient. And I guess I have to think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the patient is being honest about their habits. (laughs) So, and about the things that are really going on. I think oftentimes patients tell the doctors, you know, tell the doctor what they think they want to hear and, you know, the sort of healthier version of who they really are. I know that, you know, when I go to my doctor and she's like, how often do you drink? I'm like, how many times a day? (laughs) Right. I'm like, today, you know, it's just sort of like, I definitely, I'm not honest. I'm not 100% honest. But I think that when I have a a sort of more intimate, trusting relationship with the doctors, I I tend to be...
2: Well, it humanizes the conversation. Yeah, I I tend
1: to be very transparent about my real life and habits and lifestyle. And so I I would assume that's a big part of...
0: It's a huge part. And then it gets into other studies that show that women are better doctors. So there's a study from JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, that shows that for internal medicine doctors, if men were to... Act. I don't want to say operate because they don't operate. They're they're medical doctors. But if they were to act the way that women doctors do, it could be that we could save thirty five thousand deaths a year. And the reason that they think women are better doctors is multifold. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about female doctors is patients are more likely to disclose more. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you're talking about. They're more likely to speak up. They're more likely to make positive statements. On the other hand, and. What's harder for female doctors, they're also more likely to be assertive with their doctors if it's a female doctor, Mm -hmm. and they're more likely to interrupt their doctors if it's a female doctor. So that makes life a little bit harder for female doctors. But I think that the ability to interrupt shows trust. Like, I trust you. I don't think that you're some God on high. Yes. We're equals. I'm going to share these things, like, you know, that I drank this morning and (laughs) probably will again tonight. Yeah, and I think that that is a huge part of it.
1: It's so interesting. I had a great doctor once, and I, you know, he was a very old, he was a high risk doctor. Um, uh-huh. It was like during pregnancy. He was a very, I want say very old. That's not very probably accurate, but he was, seasoned. A, he was a seasoned old, you know, <laughs> white man. And he was like the doctor's doctor. Like he's very respected in like the community, whatever, Upper East Side. It's just, he's got a lot of status. Anyway, so I, for my second pregnancy went to him and halfway through term decided like he, I don't feel like he is supporting what I want to do at this point. And I had just to give you a quick, you know, I had a C-section for the first baby and I had really no reason because he was breached. That's the only reason. Mm -hmm. And then for the second baby, I was like, well, I know what the stats are. Like I've read about this and you know, the vast majority of women are getting C-section and now it's just like increased because it's my second. Now I'm older and I'm high risk and blah, blah, blah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had talked to him about it in a way that I wanted him to really engage with me mm-hmm. and 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 map out a plan and get very detailed with like how we were going to kind of like go after this and make sure that I don't end up having another C-section. And it was just sort of like, uh, we'll get there, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And like halfway through, it was really like one of the hardest things I've had to do. And I think it was because I had from my first pregnancy, I had just like turned him into this like, God, I'm like, he brought me this baby. Yes, He saved our lives. I mean, there was nothing really at risk there, but so I couldn't like, it got to the point where I, I, I didn't have the opportunity to have a conversation with him about it. And that felt very open. And so I ended up writing him a letter, like a very long letter. And I was like, thank you so much, blah, 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 blah. Like, but I'm going to change course here. And I know it's super late to do that, but I did. And I found this man and woman tag team doctor, like OBs that were like, yeah, we're going to get it done. This is how we're going to do it. They were like, it was just such a different experience, but it was just so hard for me to make that transition because I had put him up on this pedestal.
0: It's and they And you do, right? Because I've dated doctors and I've seen the <laughs> yeah. way that their patients... And understandably so. If you couldn't walk and now you can walk, or if you had a brain tumor and now you're okay, like, of course those people are God to you. You are God. So it makes perfect sense. This, this man helped you have this beautiful child. And so you do see it that way. Part of the issue, and I do think it's changing, I would bet that the husband, the man, woman, uh, partners that you just talked about were, are younger. One of the things that I see is that the older generation of doctors is paternalistic, as our parents wanted them to be. My mom still wants her doctor to tell her what to do. Mm. She doesn't mm. want to look it up online. Right. She doesn't want to know about VBACs, which is what you had, right? Yes. Vaginal birth after cesarean. She doesn't want to... VBAC... Uh, yeah. She wants a doctor to tell her what to do, and she'll do it. She's she's adherent. We don't use the word compliant anymore, but she's adherent. But our... Gener- I'm older than you guys, but my generation and below... We want to be partners and that's a big difference for the doctors as well. You know, if you're used to being the paternalistic father figure saying, do this, do this, do this. And now all of a sudden the child of your patient is saying, but wait, why? It's hard for them and they're going to need to get over it in order for medicine to work. And the younger generation is, I mean, they know you're going to come in. I represent a lot of nurse midwives. And they know that you're gonna come in with WebMD Dr. Google and be like, I wanna do this, this, and this. And they the other issue is it takes time to have those conversations. Yeah. And they time is hard for doctors because of the way mm. that they have to build.
1: Oh, TikTok. I mean, get in and out. So don't want to hear it. yeah, exactly.
2: So so what happens in the event? Because obviously, you know, you're doing this work defending the doctors and their work and the hospitals. But I think in general, I would say the the sort of removed distanced opinion of a medical malpractice is generally like, oh, you know, doctors and hospitals are out for blood and money. And and I I think like maybe the the common uh, accepted sort of philosophy on it is that the patient is more often correct. So how do you reconcile that? Because obviously you've seen both sides of it. And the example you just gave is very clear that that patient was not right. But I'm just, I'm just. You're so
0: right about that. And oftentimes, for the longest time, I was like embarrassed to say what I did because I think that the general consensus is that if there's a medical malpractice case, some doctor screwed up a patient. And we hear in the news about, you know, it causes so many deaths. And listen, I've had plenty of bad cases, cases where people made mistakes. We all make mistakes. When I make a mistake at work, the worst thing that can happen, knock wood, is billions of dollars being lost, right? But when a doctor makes a mistake, Mm -hmm. then people die. And so there are cases where that happens. The truth is that the majority of time when that happens, ultimately those cases settle. They resolve. The doctor says, I want to settle this case. I want my insurance company to pay the money that's needed for this family or child or patient to get the care that they need and to bring them as close to home as uh, full, whole as possible. Mm -hmm. The hardest cases, I think, are the ones where the doctor says that, you know, I, I see where I had a bad day. They oftentimes, that's the closest they can get. Because remember, take a step back. If they if they have to go in the next day and perform the same surgery, it's very hard for them to know I messed up yesterday Mm -hmm. because, you know, I know of a radiologist who had to stop practicing because he had missed a lump on a breast scan. And so afterwards, and that's an easy thing to say you messed up because there it is, buddy. Like, you know, you missed it that day. Right. But afterwards he couldn't get through his scans. He'd like look at it, be like, oh, this is okay. And then he'd bring it back up again. Well, wait a minute. Did He's I miss something? Himself. Exactly. Yeah. So most of the time the doctors can accept that they've had a bad day. And then sometimes, though, the patient or the patient's attorney wants so much money and the insurance company is willing to pay X amount of money. And so sometimes we try those cases just to see where the jury awards the money. So those cases are hard for me, A, because I know I'm gonna lose. And B, because I feel I've seen two people have heart attacks in the courtroom. <gasps> I would prefer not to put people through the stress of trial if we can help it, but sometimes you can't.
2: But so, right. okay. I mean, first of all, that's mind blowing that those are the things did that they you've live seen. or do they die?
0: Uh, They both lived. So one one story is in my book. It was my uncle and my mentor, and we were on trial together. And the jury had gone out to deliberate the day before. The next morning, I came into the courtroom. He was by himself in the courtroom in the back. And he's a 6'3", Irishman, 200-something pounds, ex-DEA agent tough guy. And he was in the back row of the courtroom, like doubled over, tears in his eyes. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he was like, chest pains. And he wouldn't go to the hospital. Uh, it was like a whole big drama. Ultimately, he went to the hospital and I had to stay and take the verdict at like 24 years old. But there are studies that show that the stress of trial is actually worse than the stress of sure. the underlying event that led to trial. I can absolutely believe that. So,
2: but, so my follow-up question to, to what, you, what you were just explaining is how do you reconcile that with yourself and find that elegant warrior balance when you see the case for what it is and you kind of know in your heart of hearts, like, this is my job and this is what I need to do. But I know that this actually should not end the way that my client wants it to, for example.
0: Yeah. So I, my primary, I have a psychology degree. And one of the many words for lawyer, so we got to put good, that on your title too. <laughs> I know. Well, there we go. We'll add, yeah, add, add it to the, in the need
2: two business cards.
0: But so the word counselor, they use that word for lawyer, and mm-hmm. I take that very seriously. So the elegant part of my job is counseling my clients, mm-hmm. not only counseling them to think about settlement when they may not be initially thinking about it, but also counseling them through the stress of being sued and the vulnerability of being sued. And the, do I want to quit my practice and I can't do this? And, you know, there's a lot that goes along with that. But so the elegance is in trying to get the, everybody to come to an agreement that this is the path we want to take. And then sometimes the warrior part is then going to court. If I have to go to court on a case where we know that the doctor has made a mistake, we'll say that to the jury. Mm. We'll say, he messed up, she messed up, and she's very sorry. Mm. You know, this was not on purpose. But we're here to decide, for you to decide, how much it's going to cost to handle the things that have to be handled. You know, the hard thing for juries is they have to award a number for pain and suffering. I know. How
1: do you quantify? I mean, it's just, I can't even imagine. There's no formula to come up with this. No,
0: No, there's no. it's, uh, It's, and every jury's different. You know, some juries award these crazy numbers that you're like, where are they getting that? But it's, and a lot of it depends on where in the country you are.
1: Yeah. You know, it's true. When I think about just the limited, I don't know, limited compared to who, but um, experience (laughs) I've had with attorneys and, you know, it's always been in the context of business. And, you know, Erica and I like sold Blueprint, even Mm -hmm. that experience. I think about the amount that we leaned on our attorney for. Way more than just the transactional piece of it. That was it was counseling. It was very much counseling. Yeah. It was like, you know, but Nick, like, what if this happens? And like, what if I wanted, you know? It was, and, and he was very good. I have to yeah, say, he was very definitely patient. very. Yes, he would. He would take time and was like, okay, like I'm trying to, you know, counsel you
2: through this, right? And, and have to un, unlearn the curse what of he re- Yeah, the yeah. curse of knowledge. Exactly, yeah, we were talking about before. Yeah, so,
1: so that, and I think that that's a big part of that trust too. So, and now I. You, know, you have to look for that in an attorney as well. It's that bedside manner and that sort of like emotional counseling that comes Every along. Relationship.
0: Yes. Every relationship. Every relationship. I mean, the trust, one of the things is I now speak to a lot of salespeople and real estate people and call center people and using all of them can use the tools of a trial lawyer to advocate for themselves and their businesses. But I always say that the most important thing is credibility, which then leads to trust. But trust, I mean, one of the things that I love that you guys will love too It's an amazing study of placebo studies. I know you guys talked Mm -hmm. about them with um, Coach Karen when Mm -hmm. she was on, but placebo studies are fascinating because they combine my psychology degree with the stuff that I do now. And there's an awesome one out of Japan where 13 people who were super allergic to poison ivy were given a piece of plant by someone that they knew and trusted Mm. and told this is poison ivy and they rubbed it on their arm. And all 13 of them broke out in hives and welts and boils but it wasn't poison ivy. It was just a plant. This is just insanity. Insanity. (laughs) It's crazy, our minds. But we talk about placebo studies and what we forget to talk about is the fact that it has to be given to you by someone you trust.
1: trust, right? Right.
0: It can't be like some researcher that you just met gives you this plant because then the placebo doesn't work. And we oftentimes talk about, oh, the power of the mind. And it's true. I mean, that is the power of the mind plus trust. Right, right. So no matter what you do, you guys, I mean, I've seen you two together two times now. And the amount of trust that's just inherently in your relationship shows me why Blueprint did so well. Oh, why you were able to end it in a way that you guys are still working together these many years later. That's that's something.
1: Yeah. Thank
2: you. That's, Thanks. Nice, to that's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think we practiced some compassion there too.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think it's, I mean, it's we've, we've, we've been together a long time and yeah. you do build that foundation yeah. of trust. And, yeah. And... I'm very grateful for it, certainly. And I, I think that but that's it's interesting that you can distill it down to like that being a particular ingredient in the sorry, the metaphor is just gonna continue. Recipe for success. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's uh
0: it's an it's it's we don't talk about it enough.
1: Yeah. So what is the difference between compassion and trust? Now you can put on your psychologist.
0: Well, so compassion, so there's a fabulous book. I'm gonna start throwing out book names, but this is one that anyone who's into wellness
1: compassion, sorry, I'm gonna Compassion, empathy, trust. Can we just, like, triangulate those?
0: Yep, and there's a, it's it's a great question. And and again, like, it's sort of like talking about happiness and joy. Like, everyone has mm. different definitions for these things. Like, I just saw Ingrid Fennell Lee, who wrote a book called Joyful, and she was talking about it, and she has a different definition than Gretchen Rubin, who wrote a book called The Happiness Project or mm-hmm. whatever. So everybody yeah. sort of has different ones. But there's this book called Compassionomics, that if you're into wellness – I think that it's important to consider the relationship between you and your entire healthcare team, which means the people that help to take care of you and the people who, uh, at home, not just the healthcare providers. This book talks about the return on investment and compassion. And it says that empathy is the ability to feel things that someone else feels. So- I believe that it starts with perspective. The first thing is to be able to see things the way another person sees them. Mm-hmm. And that sort of objective, like you don't have to be all lovey-dovey to do that. You just have to start thinking, like, how is this person seeing the world? And then empathy becomes feeling things the way that person feels them. Mm-hmm. So you're taking a step deeper. And then compassion is acting on that empathy. Right. So, so putting it into action. <clears throat> yeah. Doing something about it. Right. You know, whether that is changing the way that you're treating the person because your empathy has allowed you to see that you're hurting their feelings mm-hmm. or proactively giving them something like a meal or whatever that they might need. Trust on the other hand takes time. You know, I always tell my clients that I don't always have the opportunity to build trust in the courtroom because sometimes my trials are only two days. Sometimes they're two and a half weeks. When they're two and a half weeks, I can get a little bit closer to getting the jury to trust me. Mm. But that takes time. I mean, Mm. your relationship is an example of that, that over time in your relationships with your husbands, Mm -hmm. you know, it takes time. But trust is the ability to know that that person, if you set an expectation, they will meet it. If they make a promise, they will keep it. And, important and, if they don't, they'll be able to tell you why and have mm-hmm. a conversation with you about it. Because mm-hmm. we can't always right. keep our Right. No one promises. is a hundred
2: percent. Yes. No. And
0: we can't always meet the expectations that others have for them. But that's part of like the vulnerability that Brene Brown talks about. The ability to say, I can't do what I told you I was going to do. And I'm sorry. And I know you're mad. And that's, that builds trust too.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's huge. I think. Yeah. I think often overlooked because if you're, you know, if you're a doer and you just, you set out to do everything and you're a smooth talker and you know how to get yourself out of an argument, then there's ever really no need to be vulnerable. And that vulnerability, it's really, I mean, you can't, you can't fake it. And I feel like you, it's not sustainable to proceed without it.
0: Right. But you have to, you have to be able to say, it's a big part of when I talk about credibility to people, when I'm talking to them about advocating for themselves, it's, you know, we talk about setting expectations and meeting them and, and making promises and keeping them. And that's the do part that you just talked about, but the ability to say, and I didn't, I couldn't, right. that takes huge vulnerability, humility, um, honesty, a lot of those things that are hard for people, Yeah, authenticity, you know, but it's, it's, it's everything. Yeah the doing part is a little easier, right? Especially for those of us that will just work and work and work until we get it done. Right. Yeah. Interesting.
2: So (laughs) you've been able to really parlay this experience in your own life into a way to kind of help others, whether it's you're coaching doctors with compassion and then you have this book and, and you have the podcast. And I mean, can you talk a little bit about how that, that moment kind of when you realized like, you know, this is actually something that I need to share and and spread the word a bit on and, and what you're doing with your podcast and your your hope for where this is all gonna go.
0: So I I've always loved this stuff. I was a psychology major. I've read all the books, you know, the Wayne Dyer and the Abraham Hicks and all of that stuff. And I've always loved all of that stuff. And then I think that there's common threads in the things that we do. So I knew that there were lessons from the courtroom that applied to life. And I knew that if I were to make that analogy, a lot of people love courtroom dramas. They love all that stuff. So it would be something that, there's a lot of stories in the book because I knew the stories would then be an entree into some of the lessons I've learned. And as a lawyer, it's important to me to prove things. So there's a section at the each of every chapter, which is really short, that has, it's called prove it. And it has the evidence that supports the things that I'm saying are Mm -hmm. true. Uh, Most of it studies like the placebo study that we just talked about. So I wanted to share all of that to sort of add my voice to the many voices out there that have helped me. And I continue to do that now in the speaking. I like face-to-face connections. You know, I love the podcast, but when I get the ability to go somewhere and talk to a group of people, it's just... It lights me up and it gives me the opportunity to answer questions, you Mm -hmm. know, because I have the curse of knowledge, we all do. And so if I'm talking about something, but there's people in the audience that are like, wait, I don't get that. Or I liked that best. It's really great to be able to answer those questions. So now that's a big part of what I'm doing. It's a lot of travel to do as much speaking as I want to do, but I love it. I have been also trying to do a pro bono high school event for every paid event I do, because Mm -hmm. I think for young people, especially young girls, learning how to object. These are things to talk about in the book, learning to object, learning how to overcome objections, learning how to stop looking for objections, learning how to ask questions, use curiosity. Those are things that we need to learn as young women mm-hmm. and things that we don't always, uh, well,
2: they don't teach it in school. That's they for sure. Don't. So
0: it, they don't teach I you mean, how what would that course, what would that yourself. class be called? Advocacy. If they, advocacy. Advocacy. Yeah. It's, that's, that's what, like when you said at the beginning, what do you want to be called? I'm an advocate for advocacy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to teach people how to advocate for themselves. I gave a keynote the other day and someone came to me afterwards and he said, you know, I have five kids. None of them were taught to do this except for one, because that one child is disabled. Mm. And disabled children, children who have those types of things to overcome, they are often pulled out of class and taught, this is how you ask for what you need. This is how you say, this doesn't work for me. And those are lessons that should be taught to all children, especially girls. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially, yeah, there's nothing, uh, nothing that even comes close to it in high school.
2: No. And I mean, it's something that I think, okay, maybe if it's not, you know, it's not academic, then you don't teach it in school. But I think it's something that, and then you flip it and say, okay, well then this is something that you should learn at home. But I think a lot of parents, A, don't have the ability to even see what it is or name it right. and the vocabulary to actually coach that. I mean, it's... It's, it's uh, just a. To- talk about this birth
1: again that I had it's just it's fun there is a whole profession that you know the world of doulas I mean that is all they do they are your advocate that's right and I think a lot of people like I didn't know myself I was like well why do I need a doula you know to help me give like I have a doctor there are nurses now I need this other person to come and be my whatever support system and it really was it's not like you hire this person you know, to teach you how to like breathe and work through the pain. That's a part of it, but it's a very small part of it. The majority of what they do is advocate for you. It's very much like the go-between. So it's like, listen, I've been in this arena before. I understand the challenges we're going to come up against. I understand, you know, like in this medical community, how they want things to go. And I'm here to make sure that it goes the way you want it to go. and that is like valuable. I mean, I that was like everybody best. needs a doula. Like a it shouldn't be restricted
0: yeah, to yeah. pregnancy. Just, and not just in pregnancy, right? Exactly. We and everything need a doula. that we do. It's my sister's daughter. So my niece, so who they are, the light of my life. I don't have kids and I'm like a, all of my nieces and nephews. And she had to have like a procedure on her ear. So I think I'm a doctor because I've represented doctors so much. So I hopped in the train, went up to Boston just to go to this visit with my sister to be the advocate and to make sure that I was asking the right questions and all of those things, which I did, but I have to say... Say when we left and we were walking out. My sister said to me, "Oh, what did she say about whether or not she can swim?" And I was like, "I do not remember." So I think <laughs> yeah. that it's important to have an advocate. A doula is ideal, but if not, then bring someone with you when you have a Always. medical and, and just and take assign notes them. That I mean, task. that's the yeah, thing like.
2: Oftentimes, I guess in the case of, of a pregnancy, obviously, you know what's coming. You know you're going to be going through this. I don't know this. what's coming, though. That was you know cool. a baby's coming out. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm mean. saying when you're in the hospital and you didn't expect to be there. Right, when you're in like an accident right, or an illness, that suddenly right. So like yeah. I had a massive medical like scare a few years ago and it just happened that, and we'll talk about this offline because I want to talk about malpractice. But my husband, again, the man who has a lot of knowledge up there, he sat every single day in that room And with his little notebook, and he asked a million questions that I was definitely not capable of asking because I was, you know, still kind of coming out of anesthesia and all of that. And he took copious notes and he knew how to connect the dots between these people that were in here during the AM and then the PM shift and the nurses and the doctors, and no one was having the same conversation. And without him as the through line, I think the results could have been very different. And then he lost the notebook, which was tragic, and he was like still kicking himself over it, like years later. But the point is, you know, I've seen my mother go through medical, you know, scares and issues, and doesn't have anybody necessarily in the room with her all the time asking questions, and it's it's so infuriating to think about these settings where, again, if it's especially if it's an unexpected hospitalization, and you don't have somebody as your advocate, you're kind of screwed in many ways, and it's very upsetting.
0: It's super upsetting because, you know, so the things that I teach people now about advocacy, ultimately I want people to be their own advocates. But when you're sick, when you're in labor, when you're having an emergency, it's almost impossible to be your own advocate. And then we do rely, I think maybe sometimes too heavily on doctors to be our advocates. That's not really their job. Uh, their job is to inform us. Their job is to treat us. Their job is to operate on us. Yeah. But there should be, I mean, our healthcare system is so messy. There should be someone like a doula in everything that we do. And there are, like you can you can train to be a patient advocate in certain things, especially mm-hmm. with cancer treatments, but it's not the norm. Right,
2: it's not And the
0: norm. It's, uh, it would be... One of the greatest frustrations for me is that social workers are underutilized and underpaid Mm. because social workers can fill that gap as Mm -hmm. well to some degree. They can have those conversations about what is it that you really want and be sort of the go-between between between the healthcare team of professionals and the healthcare team at home because that is just one big team, right? And everyone's supposed to be playing together, but it's hard. And it's hard to, you know, patients are scared they're in pain, they're frustrated, and sometimes all of those things makes a person crabby and difficult.
2: Sure, right, and then they're construed as difficult, yeah. Well,
0: and studies show that if you're a difficult patient... The doctors are more likely to misdiagnose yep. you, not because they hate you, not because they're mad at you, but because it takes from their psychological reserves, and then they don't have the creativity and the stamina to make the correct right. diagnosis. They just want to be
2: done with it. I mean,
0: well, and they're like stressed. Yeah. Like if you th- think about it, like if your baby's crying and you've got the phone ringing and you've got a whole bunch of things going on, and when the, you have to do something that is creative and thoughtful, it's harder than if everything's calm and the baby's cooing and everybody's happy and lucky go lucky yeah. you know it's uh it's doctors are humans too and so we have a lot of expectations of them if we could put someone in the process that does what a doula does it to, for everyone yeah it's but but the next best thing is having someone in your life who can do that sure. and the next best thing to that is taking copious notes and asking questions and reading the book so that you know like asking questions yeah. is the answer to yeah. almost every question it and really then is. but the
1: hardest thing about that is you know uh, you, you don't know what you, you don't know, don't know. Right so if you're walking into a scenario for the first time and it's like i've never given birth before like you know the doula is like do you want to have a episiotomy or do you want to it's like what are you talking about like That's- i don't know half of the things that are going to happen so it's so important to have someone there who has some general knowledge about you know what's going to happen or think about you know just anticipating things so it's, you know in emergency situations any it, accident
0: it's a yeah it's yeah. it's not it's most likely not going to happen. It's interesting you talk about this. I mean, that's a curse of knowledge thing, right? An episiotom- episiotomy, you don't even know what that is, much less whether or not <laughs> you, you want to. Until you do, right? and then you're like, God, I wish I, <laughs> I knew what that answer. Exactly. was. Definitely no, thank I you. I never knew what that was. <laughs> I still don't want know. Yeah. I, uh, I had a guy reach out to me who wanted to interview me, and he loved the book because he had gone in for uh, an elective spine surgery. But when he woke up, he had, there's compressive stockings that they put on your legs after a surgery like that, and they squeeze you, right? Mm. No one had told him that they would go on because that's sort of the curse of knowledge. Like they put him on every patient and they don't think about it. He thought he had been paralyzed. Oh God! Because he, You know, his legs were heavy and they were sque- and he Pulcing, freaked yeah. out. Oh, right. My God. And it's like another example of where there's so much. There's a huge gap of in knowledge yeah. there between what doctors know, and it's it's a hard to fill. You know, it's not easy. This stuff yeah. isn't easy, but it's such a big part of wellness. I'm so glad that you guys are talking about it because it's not part of, you know, we talk about what we eat, we talk about meditation, we talk about working out, but these relationships sure. are such a big part of They're so
1: fundamental. It's like, wait, we have to talk about this before we could talk about meditation. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the relationship we have with our GPs before we talk
2: about- the right. other
1: GP. No, well, it's Peltro. Right. <laughs>
2: so. and, but I think it also extends to, I mean, it's interesting. This is where we really are aligned with you in terms of a mission is because our whole goal here, or at least a big piece of it, is to empower people with knowledge and information so that they themselves can be their best advocates. Yes. And, you know, unlo- short of a situation where you literally can't speak for yourself or ask questions on your own behalf the goal here is really to like empower people with as much knowledge as possible from you know people like yourself and from experts so that you don't you know you can try to avoid any potential medical you know risks as best as possible but also just like checking in with yourself and seeing how you feel whether it's because you're eating this or meditating this or sleeping this or whatever it has to do with like you you're actually the only one who knows really what's going on in your system and if you can't Tap into that, then it doesn't matter what someone else's opinion is because totally. you need to be equipped.
0: Knowledge is power, and it's knowledge about all these issues, and it's also knowledge about your body. And then recognizing that you, as a patient, also have the curse of knowledge.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, I have right. this
0: like, dip right. in my finger, and I was I have like, the same thing, it's from our phones.
1: No, oh, I was born with this.
0: I wasn't born with maybe power. you were
1: born with a phone in your and hand. I? <laughs> I was
0: like, where's my doula? <laughs> I, uh, for the, and it was hurting me. And for the, I went, my doctor gave me an x-ray, all this stuff, but I didn't think to tell him that the way I hold my phone, it rests there. Huh. Like the way I hold it, it rests there. Now I have to but all need to get these you a things, headset. yeah, well, I've, I'm much better than I used to be, but all of these things are things that like, to your point, Erica, you know, your body and how it responds to sugar or gluten or whatever, or stress, but you sometimes know that so well that it doesn't occur to you to tell the doctor. Right. That, you know, like when I get stressed, this happens and that little piece of information can be really helpful.
2: I think that's actually how I ended up in the hospital. Because I knew something was up and I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And it turned out I had an ulcer and it exploded because nobody <laughs> knew it was there. And I knew that something was up in my system, but I could not articulate it and find the words and nobody caught it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And don't be afraid to bounce around. Because right. this exactly. is another part if of it. Don't if like if you don't like what someone have, is telling you. Well, if you don't have the vocabulary and you know, you're like, okay, maybe I'm not articulating this properly and that's part of the problem maybe try another doctor. Maybe they will understand what you're trying to say. Maybe they will ask you different questions. And then if they don't, go to another doctor and get another opinion, another opinion, another opinion. I have
0: truly mastered this
1: in my life. I mean, I go from doctor to doctor to doctor. I am like...
0: I think that that's true. It's a relationship. I mean, it gets back to the trust. You've got to find someone you trust. When you do that, bring your medical records with you because they need to see it. it, You know, with medical issues like an ulcer, it's like being a detective and they need as much evidence as they can have. So it's the evidence that you provide in your history and your physical, but it's also the studies that you've had and things that other doctors have written down, you know, the electronic medical record is a whole other topic and it's in the source of enormous stress for a lot of healthcare providers, but it is theoretically going to provide the people who care for us with all of those records. But mm-hmm. I think it's incumbent on patients to get that stuff together and bring it from doctor to doctor. Yeah.
1: I had one example is when I left a doctor who was like, I had a miscarriage. No one knew why it was like very late. It was a Turned out, like they tested me for all, did a whole blood workup, et cetera. And then um, still came up with like no answer. And I was like, well, I kind of am trying to get pregnant here. So I don't really want that to happen again. So maybe we can find an answer. Right, like we don't know so, so is not really acceptable. Right. So, so it's just like, ugh, shrugging your shoulders and say, sometimes these things happen is not really acceptable to me. So I went to another doctor's, the high risk doctor I went to and sat in front of him. He was pouring over all of my records and he literally said like, you know, you could see how thoughtful he was being. He was really investigating and he finally said, did anyone test you for, you know, whatever S protein level? And I was like, I don't think so. And I mean, they had tested my blood for like everything. Mm. Um and he's like, that That's, I think you have like a little bit of a clotting issue. So let's test that and make sure. And lo and behold, you know, I had like a little bit of a clotting issue, it was most likely a blood clot. And, you know, put me on blood thinners. And I was just like, again, this is why I thought this man was God. Yeah, And it was so hard to leave him because he was like so thoughtful.
0: But he was the right person at the right time. Yes. Right. So, and then he you wasn't. Know, so you're yeah. the, the, the man-woman team, maybe they wouldn't have been so thoughtful and investigative. Yeah. You know, you found the right person at the right time. The other thing that's really hard, really hard, and I've had my own host of health issues, and it's really hard to hear, we don't know why but sometimes they don't know why and yes and and they're never going to find out why yes. and that is really frustrating as a patient yeah. especially if you're in pain you know i've i've been there and i understand that frustration that like it's almost at the point where you're like i don't even care what it is just tell me what it is yes. so that i can do oh. something about it but it's a uh, it's it's this isn't easy stuff but it becomes better when you know how to advocate for yourself
1: yeah Um, geez, there's so much, there's
0: there's so much good stuff here, you know, it's a great conversation. I'm glad that you guys are having it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you for sharing your, your piece of it, because I think this is, yeah, it's just, it's so important for people to, again, it doesn't just apply to the medical circumstance in the moment. It really does apply to life in general. Absolutely. You have to learn how to be the advocate and you have to, I mean, can you be like, could you just be like a life doula for
0: people? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going to say from now on. I'm not an advocate. I'm a life I'm a doula. a life doula. Yeah. But I think it's, it's the same, you know, the issues apply everywhere. Yeah. Like learning to object is something that I talk about in the book the first time I learned to object in the courtroom and then objecting outside the courtroom. But it's really hard when you have a doctor that you consider a god and like this person that you have so much respect for to object to something that they do. And that's the reason that we see, I mean, this is a whole other tangent, but that's the reason we see situations where, people in positions of authority, doctors, priests, coaches, mm. are able to get away with things yep. because people don't learn how to object, especially mm-hmm. to people in positions of authority. Or
2: they just think that they're supposed to trust this person, even if something in their gut doesn't. Right.
0: That that gut feeling, I talk about it in the book. Like when you know in your head, your heart, and your gut that it's time to object, object. Yeah. You know, you don't need to wait for permission. You don't need to get validation. You need to find a way to
1: make yeah. it happen. I, I so I just think you know it's it, it is so applicable to everything. I'm just thinking about like teenage teenagers, not just teenage girls, but teenagers when they're learning about sex and sex ed, and yep. a how late it starts, but b you know how technical it is. It's yeah. the education has nothing to do with right. how to. Object. So it's like here's your urethra, here's your testicles, whatever. Go <laughs> on, have a good have a good time, kids. Right, but it's conduct. never like, hey, what if you're in this situation and you don't like what this is? Here are some ways that you could like object to this, and well, if you don't feel good about that, then or maybe it like this should be pleasurable. Let's talk about how you could right. make it feel better. Right. Yes. Um, so these conversations, I think, are so it's so
2: applicable to that too. Yeah,
0: advocating for yourself in the bedroom is yeah. important. It's it's a uh, for sure. And for boys and girls, right? You know, and it's they not don't, just they about they what you
2: know. don't want; it's also about what you right. do. Absolutely,
0: like how you... and and how to get pleasure yeah. out of out of what you're doing, because yeah. boys and men and women should be getting pleasure out of yeah. what they're doing. Right?
2: Oh, oh, so is... many life lessons <laughs> Oh my goodness! There's so much learning. There to really do.
1: is. Well, thank you so much. It's you sit in such a unique position with all of your many hats. Uh,
0: it's it's fun. You know, I love this stuff and I love the idea that we can be better. I believe we can be better. You know, one of the things and I know we have to wrap up, but one of the things that I think that I learned from my job is every time I take a deposition, it's about lost opportunity. Like the patient is saying the doctor had the opportunity to fix me, cure me, diagnose me and didn't. But also they're often saying, and now I don't have the opportunity to do the things I wanted to do, travel the way that I wanted to travel, be the person I wanted to be, spend the time with my kids I mm-hmm. wanted to spend. And in 20 years of that, what I've learned is that we need to do everything we can not to look back and say, I miss those opportunities. So if you have an op- opportunity to advocate for yourself, do so. Mm-hmm. If you have the opportunity to object, do so. Taking the opportunities that are presented to you so that you don't look back and regret, I think is one of the things that I most hope people get out of my keynotes, my speeches, my podcast, and the book.
1: Yeah, opportunity cost is high in some
2: situations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank well this you has been that. so so exciting to hear from you and to be able to share. I'm very excited to, to for people to listen well, to. Well, thank what you, you have for having
0: me. I love your podcast.
2: Thank you, and we're going to send people to yours too. The Elegant Warrior. Yeah, all yeah, right. a good one. Especially on our episode. That's right. <laughs> Fascinating. Absolutely. And clearly yeah. going to win all sorts of awards. <laughs> <laughs> <For off season. laughs> thank you so much, Heather. Thanks, my pleasure. Heather. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at
1: hwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.